0: When God first promised redemption, He promised division. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the very beginning. Let's go to Genesis 3.15 or follow along and listen. But if you do have your Bibles, please turn with me there. Genesis 3.15. This is known as the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel. Proto meaning first Evangelion is where we get the word evangelism. The first word of grace. The first gospel. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. God first promises redemption here. But listen, He also promises division. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here in the first gospel, God, look at it, God promises to protect the offspring of the woman and to oppose the offspring of the serpent. Here in the first gospel, God separates He separates the offspring of the woman from the offspring of the serpent. And he separates by way of opposition, by division. And as Genesis unfolds, the opposition unfolds. And we see that opposition in the flood narrative. Think of the flood narrative. So we have the rainbow children, right? Noah and the ark, and all the animals two by two. Genesis six eleven says the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And we know what happened. God separated. He protected the godly line, the offspring of the woman, and the ark as he opposed the offspring of the serpent. In this history, this flood narrative, this history will repeat itself. Now, jump all the way over to 2 Peter, all the way to the back of the Bible. You go to the very front, you go to the very back. History repeats itself. 2 Peter, right after 1 Peter, (laughs) but somewhere where we can never find, right? Somewhere back there. Right before you get to Jude and Revelation. John and then Jude, Revelation. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. And that by means of these, the world that then existed... He's talking about the flood. That's the context. By the flood, by the means of the water... The world that then existed. That's an important phrase. The world that then existed. There was a world that then then existed. And it was what? Deluged with water and perished. There was a world before our world. Deluged and perished. Verse 7. History repeats itself. But by the same word... The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. As God protected the godly line, as He opposed the world, He will likewise likewise protect the church and oppose this world that now exists. As a gospel promise. The gospel as a promise of division. And this division is of particular interest in Romans 9. You see, eventually that godly line becomes a nation. Paul referenced that in Romans 9, beginning verse 4. He says, they are Israelites. So far in Romans, he's spoken of the Jews in with their ethnic identification. They are the Jews. Now for the first time, he references their national identity, Israelites. They took on this nationhood, but here lies the problem. God's nation. God has separated himself from the nation of Israel. And that's Paul's interest in Romans 9. How is God faithful to Israel when He has separated Himself from the nation. How is God faithful to Israel according to the promise of Genesis 3.15 when He's actually divided, when He's separated Himself? Now some resolve the tension with a Latter-day Saints kind of theology where God at a later date will return to Israel for a thousand years and so forth. It's not necessary, according to Romans 9. And so I want to answer the question this morning, how then is God faithful to Israel? How is God faithful to Israel? That is the question that I want to answer from Romans chapter 9. First of all, We know that he has separated himself from the nation. And so Romans 9 begins with sorrow. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. First of all, that's an oath formula. He's taken upon himself this oath formula, which are lawful in order to render the truth credible. We shouldn't stumble over Jesus' words. On the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, do not take an oath. What Jesus is saying there in the Sermon on the Mount is we shouldn't be, as the Pharisees, and take these false oaths. The Bible's full of oath-taking. The Old Testament Old Testament patriarchs took oaths. Paul took an oath. He put himself before the oath. Jesus put himself under the oath with Pilate. Actually, the truly, truly sayings, the amen, amen sayings are a form of oath-taking. God himself puts himself under the oath in the Old Testament. And so Heidelberg Catechism asks, may we swear reverently in the name of God? And the answer is yes. When the magistrate requires it, or when it may be needful otherwise, to ma- to maintain and promise, ideally, the truth, to the, or, or t- to promise uh, truth, to maintain uh, the truth to the glory of God and our neighbor's good. And so oaths are grounded in God's word, and they're rightly used Therefore, by the saints in the Old and the New Testament. And Paul's truth here, his oath that he's taken, is his concern for his people. He says that, I have great sorrow, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why this sorrow? Well, he answers their sorrow because God has separated himself from the nation. Verse 3, For I could wish, he says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. He takes upon himself this self-maledictory oath that I would be accursed. That word accursed in the Greek is the Greek word anathema. This is not just some temporal cursing. This is eternal separation from God. Thereby we see there the seriousness of the separation. For the sake of my brothers, he says, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Why does Paul take upon himself this Maledictory Oath, Well, he explains in verse 4, they are Israelites, that is, they are God's nation, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. He loved the nation of Israel, not simply because it was home, I'm sure there was that's part of the answer, it's his home. But when he explains why, we see that he loves the nation because of God's gifts to them. You see, he loved them on account of God's gifts. And we can look at these gifts. Look at them. They are Israelites. They are the nation. And to them belong adoption. They're God's children. The second gift here is the glory You see, God raised this people of this nation above all the other nations. They were high above all the other nations. They had the glory of God. What's the glory of God? It's Emmanuel. God was with them. There's their glory. They had the covenants. God was with them in a legal binding way whereby they also had a legal obligation to the Lord. And they failed that legal obligation, and that's why God has separated himself. And the stipulations of that obligation and the covenants are found in the fourth gift, the giving of the law. They had the law, they had Torah, Torah to obey, to secure the right of Emmanuel, Or the curse, the anathema. They had the worship, they had the true worship. And the final gift, they had the promises. They had the promises. And what were the promises? We're talking about the Mosaic people. The Mosaic covenant. That's what it means to be an Israelite. When he says Israelite, he's referencing the Mosaic covenant. If we can find what the promises are. Now, they are the same as in the beginning with Adam in the garden. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Deuteronomy, the last book of Torah. Deuteronomy chapter eleven, verses twenty-six and twenty-eight. There's so many places in Deuteronomy I could turn to to get these stipulations. It's all over the place, beginning in, really in chapter seven, actually. Yeah, chapter 6, from chapter, after, basically after the giving of the law in chapter 5 all the way to chapter 11, he keeps responding the same the same stipulations. Deuteronomy 11, 26 and 28. He says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The Lord is setting before the Israelites, this new nation, a blessing and a curse. The blessing, verse 27. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you today... So, obedience, blessings, and the curse, verse 28, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, well, then the curse is found. You see, if they, obeyed the hand, if they obeyed, they had the promise of a people and a place. Yet here lies Paul's problem, as Hosea clarifies, Hosea 6-7. But like Adam, Israel transgressed the covenants. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Like Adam, in the garden, with the covenant of works, they failed. And here we find that the promises of God are always found in the covenant. The promises of God are found in the covenant of works. God made with Israel. And they received the promised curse because like Adam, they were covenant breakers and thus were separated. That's the problem. But then there's this other list, verse 5. We're back in Romans now. Romans 9, verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs. You see, the first list, as Israelites, that was the list was tied to Moses. Now he is tying the second list to Abraham. And ultimately, the fulfillment. And from their race, according to the flesh, Emmanuel is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. You know, Emmanuel, that really is the greatest gift of all that Israel received from the Lord. So how could a people with such wonderful gifts, the gifts of Emmanuel, be separated from God? Verse 6, Paul presents the problem. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. You see, if God has separated himself from Israel... Then how can he be faithful? How can he be faithful to the Genesis 315 promise or the Abrahamic promise? They had the patriarchs they had Abraham, they had Abraham's promise, a people and a place to be their shield, to be their reward, protection, provision. How could God be faithful to these promises if he separated himself from this nation? And here in Paul in verse 9, beginning verse 7 and following. really verse 6 and following, we find two important truths. First of all, we find here really how to read the Bible. What we find here in Paul is an exegete of the Old Testament, one who knew the Old Testament well. And so as we read Paul here, in Paul's use of the Old Testament, We learn how to use the Old Testament. Like I said, we don't just get our our thinking from the Bible, but our doing. We want to do what Paul does. We want to read the Bible like Paul read the Bible. And when we do here in this text, we find that God's word has not failed Israel because God never promised national Israel salvation. That's Paul's argument here. He's never promised national Israel salvation. Verse 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. I'm sorry, but you got to put on your thinking caps here. We're Reformed. We don't leave our brains at home. Put on your thinking cap. Now look at the text. And pay careful attention to Paul. The same attention he paid to the Old Testament. Let's now pay attention to Paul. Look at this verse. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Notice here that Paul insists that there are two Israels. Not all from Israel One Israel belonged to this Israel, this other Israel. In the Greek it literally says, not all those those from Israel be Israel. (laughs) Very literal. Not all those from Israel be Israel. Not all citizens of the nation belong to the people in place of Israel. And it's not only two nations or two Israels, but look, there's two children, verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Look at it. There's two offspring, two children. Children and offspring, Israel and Israel. And here is how we are going to begin to see how God is faithful to Israel. And Paul gives his first proof here, verse 7. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named by Isaac. Remember the story of Isaac. There were two children involved in that story, right? Ishmael, the older, and Isaac, the younger. But by by appealing to Isaac, we find that the offspring of the woman does not belong to every child of Abraham. There are in Abraham here two offspring. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh. Again, there's two children in Abraham. There's the children of the flesh who are the children of God. So there's flesh, there's children of flesh, children of God. But the children of the promise, now there's this third, (laughs) which is really just the children of God. There's children of the promise are counted as the offspring. So Paul says Abraham fathered children of the flesh and Abraham fathered children of God. Abraham fathered children of the flesh In Abraham, fathered children of the promise. Two Israels, two nations, even in Abraham, two children. And Paul is going to make the argument that God has protected the children of the promise. Not the children of the flesh. He's opposed, actually. The children of the flesh. And so, God is faithful to Israel. God is faithful to Israel. but The question is, which Israel are we talking about? The nation or the nation? (laughs) The Israel or the Israel? Or better, the offspring of promise or the offspring of flesh? You see, God is faithful to the Israel of God Or as Jesus said in John 18, 36, Jesus chimes in on this text kind of, well, in a roundabout way. In John 18, 36, when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. That's the Israel that God is faithful to, a kingdom not of this world. And so Paul argues for the otherworldly nature of the kingdom of God with Isaac's history. You see, Isaac's calling, it runs contrary to the flesh. It runs contrary to the ancient Near East and the polity of that world. In that world, the firstborn had all the rights. But not in the case of Isaac, verse 9. For this is what the promise said. And then he quotes from Genesis 17, verse 20. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. This statement is God's answer to Abraham's request that Ishmael be the promised child. Because all intents and purposes, you know, why couldn't Ishmael be, you know, The child of promise. Abraham could see no reason why Ishmael should not be the child of promise. He was his son, natural born son of Abraham. He had the covenant. He was circumcised. He belonged to the people of God. Abraham loved him. Abraham didn't want to put him away. So why shouldn't Ishmael be a child of promise? Why? Why not? Romans 9. Abraham hadn't read Romans 9. Not all children are heirs of the promise. The answer was no. And it's here in this answer that we find an important reform distinction when it comes to our covenant theology. In covenant theology, There is what we call the outward administration of the covenant of grace. Now, that sounds technical, but it really isn't. There is an outward administration to the covenant of grace. There are, for example, outward signs. There are externals to the covenant. One being what? Circumcision, right? In the Old Testament, New Testament, baptism. This is an outward administration. All who have the sign outwardly belong to the covenant. All those who had the sign of circumcision belong to Abraham. But internally, not all truly belong to the Abrahamic covenant. Case in point, Ishmael. He had the external sign. He had the outward administration. And therefore, he enjoyed the benefits of the outward administration. But inwardly. He did not belong to the covenant of grace. He had the outward sign. He had the circumcision of the flesh, but not the circumcision of the heart. Right? That's why the Old Testament always appeals to, uh, to the Jews, to the Israelites, be circumcised in your hearts. Don't look to the external sign as your salvation. But the thing signified. It is here in this outward administration that we find the necessity of hidden election of God. And this hidden election of God overrules the outward administration. Even though Ishmael had the outward administration, he had the sign, God's grace and election overruled it. And that means for us in our text this morning, for Paul's argument, that natural descent... That the covenant and salvation is not due to natural descent, ethnicity, your works in who you are and what you do. The argument here of Paul is that the everlasting Israel is spiritual. So that when external members, when those outward members of the covenant are excommunicated, like the nation of Israel, they were separated from God, this does not go against God's faithfulness. So in those churches that practice church discipline as required by Christ when those churches put out from their midst as Paul says in Romans 7 when we purge the ungodly from our midst when we excommunicate it is not as if God is is God's promise to them it's not as if God is faithless to them or that his that he hasn't been faithful to his promise the point being if they never returned because God, you know, we pray that God uses excommunication to draw them back, right? That's why we put them out. Paul says that Satan may have his way with them. That way we want them back. We do it because we want them back. We probably all know people who've been excommunicated, and our prayers is that we get them back. We want them back, and we, we pray the Lord uses this to give them back to us. And that's his promise to us. And it really is his promise to us to use uh, this bitter medicine to bring them back. But if it, God so wills that they never come back, it's not as if his promise, this doesn't disprove his faithfulness because God has never promised them salvation because they never truly belong. And so God never promised the nation of Israel. In God's word, he never promised the nation this salvation. Now you might be thinking, what about the fact that Ishmael was a child of this uh, of Hagar? Well, Paul says, verse 10, and not only so, he kind of recognizes, hey, you might use that argument, but I got more proof. <laughs> I got more evidence, and frankly, it's better. Verse 10, and not only so, but also Rebekah, right? Godly, she's from the godly line. With Isaiah, with Isaac. Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. And so here we have two godly parents with twins. Verse 11. And though they were not yet born and had done nothing, had done nothing <laughs> either good or bad. So here is even a greater argument. We have two godly parents, two offspring of the women who conceive and have twins. And here, know the story. The story has a context, right? The twins were what? Conceived in sin. The, the twins belong to the guilt of Adam, right? Like all of us but they also belonged to the covenant of God. They were covenant children. Also, we know from the ancient Near East that the older, the younger, should serve the older. That's the order of things. And so for all intents and purposes, in the womb, when we see uh, 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 Esau born, the hairy one, (laughs) when the hairy child is born, when Esau is born, we think, there's the godly child by all intents and purposes, Right? That's the tax. But no. Again, Romans 9. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, not because of ethnicity, but because of the call, but because of him who calls. Everything was in favor of Esau over Jacob, except this, the word of God. She was told the older will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. The promise of God in His election trumps, overrules the flesh. It overrules the outward administration. So how is God faithful to Israel? And Paul's answer here is predestination. How is God faithful to Israel? The answer is election. And God's call. And God's purposes. Verse 13. It's a hard text to hear. And a lot of people stumble over this. I remember when I I read it when I was an Arminian. I remember in college at Moody Bible Institute. I literally threw my Bible across the room. (laughs) I was so mad at God. No. Kind of threw a fit my Arminianism through a fit. No. I went over and I picked it up. I said, Lord, I believe your word. And I read it. And I believe. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In the Greek here, as so many Armenians want to say this does not say Jacob I love and Esau I love less. No. This is a covenantal hatred. It is the same hatred he has for all the offspring of the serpent. He is saying here, Jacob, I promise to protect and to provide for Esau. I will oppose People want to say God hates sin, but not the sinners. No, they're wrong. God hates sinners because he's a holy God. He's a righteous, he's a just God. Hell is not full of sins. Hell is full of sinners. It's a truth we don't like to preach on. I don't enjoy this, but it is God's word. You see, God chose Jacob to belong to his offspring because Jacob was an offspring of the woman. Now, the question, is this fair? There is a fairness issue here, right? That's the question. Is this fair? I don't want to get into that now. That's not the point of my sermon. <laughs> but I will get into that next week. You know why? Why? look at it verse 14, what shall we say? <laughs> is this fair? That's what Paul, that's Paul's next verse. Is this fair? And Paul gives an answer and I will give an answer next week. Actually I'm going to give an answer in the second service just because I know this is the Canador call the doctrine of election bitter medicine. it's hard to swallow. But here's the point of our text this morning. Without getting weighed into the details into a different era, area. The Abrahamic covenant. The Paul's argument here is that the Abrahamic covenant does not take place in all the children of the covenant indiscriminately. Paul is saying that salvation does not belong to anything in us. Paul is saying here that you cannot appeal. You cannot appeal to your ethnicity. You can't say, well, I was baptized. I'm an American, right? Of course, I'm going to get in. I'm an American. I, I, I sweat red, white and blue or bleed red, white and blue. If you sweat red, white, blue, you might go see a doctor. I think you believe that too, anyway. But the point is, you can't appeal to your works. Look what I've done, Lord. Look at all the work that I've done. Look how I have obeyed this external. You can't appeal to even the externals. You can't appeal to religion even in a sense. You can't say, "Look, baptize," you know, and and sacraments and all. Don't I'm not. Don't get me wrong. These things are all right and necessary, but you can't make your appeal to these externals and to the outward signs alone. The appeal, the only appeal that we can make, is the appeal of God, the appeal to God, and what God has done. You see, salvation is free. Which means it always goes back to God. And that's Paul's argument. It always goes back to God. And it goes back to the before the foundation of the world in God's election. And election assures, ensures that salvation is grounded in grace alone. It means we do nothing to earn it. It it means it's ours before we've done anything good or bad. That's such an important truth. Because remember, even when he makes that appeal which is a rhetorical question. We know in the back of our minds, we've only done what? In sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51, I was evil born in sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. You see, we're sinners and God is holy. And so friends, we must be elect in Christ. In Christ we find our protection. Christ is our protection. So why did God even elect a nation? Why did God elect a nation? God elected a nation that we might have our Emmanuel. You see, God created the nation through a works principle, whereby he promised Israel, if you obey, life. If you disobey, death. This was a typological and temporary covenant that gave us Emmanuel. Galatians 4.4 4, Christ was born of a woman, Israelite, born under the law. And so Jesus becomes the S and the Amen of redemptive history. He completed the covenant of works on the cross when he said it is finished. He earned the grace of the Abrahamic covenant. He is the eternal son. Who gave himself for our sins. He is the glory of God. The glory of God died on the cross for our sins. He fulfilled the covenants. He kept the giving of the law. He worshiped God perfectly. Right? When he was tempted by the Satan, he always says, no, it is written. (laughs) He went to the word. And he received, because of his obedience, the promise of eternal life. You see, friends, Jesus is the true Israel. He is the Adam, the second Adam, the true Israel of God. He is the offspring of Abraham. And so God gave us the nation of Israel to give us the ark of Christ that we might escape the judgment of God. You see, by faith, We, like Noah, pass safely through in Christ. And we pass safely through to the other side, to the promised land. New heavens, new earth. How is God faithful to Israel? The answer has always been Jesus Christ. It's the Sunday school answer. How is God faithful to Israel? Jesus Christ. You see, in Christ, the offspring of the woman has opposed the serpent and he put him to death. And we have nothing but God's protection, nothing but God's provision from now on into eternity. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.